9. Ulti fail to make themselves known at night. The table where these children were reading swarmed with them. And I can safely say there were five dozen on a space three feet square. They ran everywhere about the premises except into the fire. Walls, beds, tables, and floors were plentifully covered with these disagreeable insects. The Russians do not appear to mind them. And probably anyone residing in that region would soon be accustomed to their presence. Occasionally they are found in bread and soup. And do not improve the flavor. Life on the steamboat was a trifle monotonous. But I found something new daily. Our schoolward boy is called Bufechi in Russian brought me water for washing when I rose in the morning. And the samovar with tea when I was dressed. Borzdine rose about the time I did and joined me at tea. Then we had breakfast of beef and bread with potatoes about 11 or 12 o'clock. And dinner at 6. The intervals between meals were variously filled. I watched the land. Talked with Borzdine. Read. Wrote. Smoked. And contemplated the schoolward but never imagined him a disguised angel. I looked at the steerage passengers and the crew, and think their faces are pretty well fixed in memory. Had I only been able to converse in Russian I should have found much more enjoyment. As for the cook it is needless to say that I never penetrated the mysteries of his realm. Little games of cards were played daily by all save myself, I used to look on occasionally but never learned at the games. One of the Russian games at cards is called poker and is not much unlike that seductive amusement so familiar to the United States. Once it came I could not ascertain, but it was probably taken there by some enterprising American. Some years ago a Western actor who was able to play Hamlet, Richelieu, Richard I.I.I., Claude Melmoth, and draw poker, made his way to Australia, where he delighted the natives with his dramatic genius. But though he drew crowded houses his cash box was empty, as the treasurer stole the most of the receipts. He did not discharge him as there was little prospect of finding a better man in that country, but he taught him draw poker, borrowed five dollars to start the game, and then every morning won from the treasurer the money taken at the door on the previous night. As we approached the usury there was a superior magnificence in the forest. The trees on the southern bank grew to an enormous size in comparison with those lower down the river. Naturalists say that within a short distance in this region may be found all the trees peculiar to the Amur. Some of them are three or four feet in diameter and very tall and straight. The elm and larch attain the greatest size, while the ash and oak are but little inferior. The cork tree is two feet through, and the Machia species of oak with a brown, firm wood grows to the diameter of a foot or more. In summer the foliage is so dense that the sun's rays hardly penetrate and there is a thick chaparral that makes locomotion difficult. Just below the usury the settlers had removed the undergrowth over a small space and left the trees appearing taller than ever. In a great deal of travel I have never seen a finer forest than on this part of the Amur. I do not remember anything on the lower Mississippi that could surpass it. Tigers and leopards abound in these forests, and bears are more numerous than agreeable. Occasionally one of these animals dines upon a goldie. But the custom is not in favor with the natives. It is considered remarkable that the Bengal tiger, belonging properly to a region nearer the equator, should range so far north. On some of its excursions it reaches 53 degrees north latitude, and feeds upon reindeer and sables. The valley of the Amur is the only place in the world outside of a menagerie where all these animals are found together. The tropical ones go farther north and the arctic ones farther south than elsewhere. It is the same with the vegetable kingdom. The mahogany and cork tree grow here, 
and the bark of the latter is largely used by the natives. On the slopes of the mountains a few miles away are the Siberian pine, the iron spruce, and here and there a large tree. Cedars and fir trees are abundant and grow to a great size. The whole appearance of the region is one of luxuriance and fertility. The mouth of the Usuri is a mile wide, and the stream is said to be magnificent through its whole length. Its sources are in latitude 44 degrees and its length is about 500 miles. While I was at Nikolaevsk Admiral Fulium said to me, I have just returned from a voyage on the Usuri. It is one of the loveliest rivers I ever saw. The valley bears such a resemblance to a settled country with alternate parks and open country that I almost look to see some grand old mansion at every bend of the stream. A little past noon we sighted the town and military post of Hadarovka at the mouth of the Usuri. It stands on a promontory overlooking both rivers, and presents a pleasing appearance from the Anor. The portion first visible included the telegraph office and storehouses, near which a small steamer was at anchor. A manger trading boat was at the bank. Its crew resting on shore, a piece of canvas had been spread on the ground and the men were lounging upon it. One grave old personage, evidently the owner of the boat, waved his hand toward us in a dignified manner, but we could not understand his meaning. Coming to shore we narrowly missed running over a goldy boat that crossed our track. Our wheel almost touched the stern of the craft as we passed it, but the occupants appeared no wise alarmed. Two women were rowing and a man steering while a man and a boy were idle in the bow. A baby, strapped into a shallow cradle, lay in the bottom of the boat near the steersman. The young Mongol was holding his thumb in his mouth and appeared content with his position. The town was in a condition of Romish like a western city in its second year. There was one principal street and several smaller ones, regularly laid out. As in all the Russian settlements on the Anor the houses were of logs and substantially built. Passing up the principal street we found a store where we purchased a quantity of canned fruit, meats, and pickles. These articles were from Boston, New York, and Baltimore, and had American labels. The pictures of poaches, strawberries, and other fruits printed on the labels were a great convenience to the Russian clerk who served us. He could not read English, but understood pictorial representations. On the boat we gave the cans to the steward, to be opened when we ordered. The pictures were especially adapted to this youth as he read no language whatever, including his own. On one occasion a quantity of deville turkey was put up in cans and sent to the Anor, and the label was beautified with a picture of his satanic majesty holding a turkey on the end of a fork. The natives supposed that the devil was in the cans and refused to touch them. The supply was sent back to Nikolaevsk, where it was eaten by the American merchants. Accompanying Borstynai called upon the officer in command. We were ushered through two or three small rooms into the principal apartment, which contained a piano of French manufacture. Three or four officers and as many ladies enabled us to pass an hour very pleasantly till the steam whistle recalled us. But we did not leave until two hours after going on board. Two or three men had been allowed on shore and were making themselves comfortable in Alaska. Two others went for them. But as they did not return within an hour the police went to search for both parties. When all were brought to the steamer it was difficult to say it the last word or not first in intoxication. Several passengers left us at Hadarovka, among them the black-eyed girl that attracted the eyes of one or two passengers in the cabin. As we departed she stood on the bank and waved us an adieu. In the freight taken at this point there were 15 chairs of local manufacture, they were piled in the cabin and did not leave us much space. 
when we considered the number and size of the fleas. On my first night on the Ingoda the fleas did not disturb me as I came after visiting hours and was not introduced. On all subsequent nights they were persevering and relentless, I was bitten until portions of my body appeared as if recovering from a Polynesian tattoo. They used to get inside my underclothing by some mysterious way and when there they walked up and down like sentries on duty and bit at every other step. It was impossible to flee from them, and they appointed their breakfasts and lunches at times most inconvenient to myself. If I were Emperor of Russia I would issue a special edict expelling fleas from my dominions and ordering that the labor expended in scratching should be devoted to agriculture or the mechanic arts. I suggested that the engines should be removed from the Ingoda and a treadmill erected for the fleas to propel the boat. There have been exhibitions where fleas were trained to draw microscopic coaches and perform other fantastic tricks, but whatever their ability I would wager that the insects on that steamboat could not be outdone in industry by any other fleas in the world. One of my standard amusements was to have a grand hunt for these lively insects just before going to bed and I have no doubt that the exercise assisted to keep me in good health. I used to remove my clothing, which I turned inside out and shook very carefully. Then I bathed from head to foot in some villainous brandy that no respectable flea would or could endure. After this ablution was ended, I donned my garments, wrapped in my blanket, and proceeded to dream that I was a hen with thirteen chickens, and doomed to tear up an acre of ground for their support. Chapter XV when I rose in the morning after leaving Hodorovka the steward was ready with his usual pitcher of water and basin. In Siberia they have a novel way of performing ablutions. They rarely furnish a wash bowl, but in place of it bring a large basin of brass or other metal. If you wish to wash hands or face the basin is placed where you can lean over it. A servant pours from a pitcher into your hands, and if you are skillful you catch enough water to moisten your face. Frequently the peasants have a water can attached to the wall of the house in some out-of-the-way locality. The can has a valve in the bottom open from below like a trapdoor in a roof. By lifting a brass pin that projects from this valve one can fill his hands with water without the aid of a servant. While I was arranging my toilet the steward pointed out of the cabin window and uttered the single word, Kitty, emphasizing the last syllable. I looked where he directed and had my first view of the Chinese Empire. Kiti is the Russian name of China, and is identical with the cafe of Marco Polo and other early travelers. I could not see any difference between Kiti on one hand and Russia on the other, there were trees and bushes, grass and sand, just as on the opposite shore. In the region immediately above the Usuri there are no mountains visible from the river, but only the low banks on either hand covered with trees and bushes. Here and there were open spaces appearing as if cleared for cultivation with occasional sandbars and low islands, and the banks frequently broken and shelving. The resemblance to the lower Mississippi was almost perfect. Mr. Mock says of this region, in the early part of the year when the yellow blossoms of the Lonicera crescent fill the air with their fragrance, when the syringas bloom and the hyalone convidex large tracts with a bright golden hue, when corydals, violets, and pasque flowers are open. The forests near the Osiri may bear comparison in variety of richness and coloring with the open woods of the prairie country. Later in the year, the scarcity of flowers is compensated by the richness of the herbage, and after a shower of rain delicious perfumes are wafted towards us from the tops of the walnut and cork trees. A little past noon we touched at the Russian village of Petrovsky. At this place the river was rapidly washing the banks, 
and I was told that during three years nearly 400 feet in front of the village had been carried away. The single row of houses forming the settlement stands with a narrow street between it and the edge of the bank. The whole population, men, women, and children, turned out to meet us. The day was cool and the men were generally in their sheepskin coats. The women wore gowns of coarse cloth of different colors, and each had a shawl over her head. Some wore coats of sheepskin like those of the men, and several were barefooted. Two women walked into the river and stood with utter nonchalance where the water was 15 inches deep. I immersed my thermometer and found it indicated 51 degrees walking on shore. I was nearly overturned by a small hog running between my legs. The brute, with a dozen of his companions, had pretty much his own way at Petrovsky. And after this introduction I was careful about my steps. These hogs are modeled something like blockade runners, with great length, narrow beam, and light draft. They are capable of high speed, and would make excellent time if pursued by a bulldog or pursuing a swill bucket. A peasant told us there were wild geese in a pond nearby, and as the boat remained an hour or more to take wood, Borstein and I improvised a hunting excursion. It proved in every sense a wild goose chase, as the birds flew away before we were in shooting distance. Not wishing to return empty-handed we purchased two geese a few hundred yards from the village and assumed an air of great dignity as we approached the boat. We subsequently ascertained that the same geese were offered to the schoolward for half the price we paid. Just above Petrovsky we passed the steamer Andor, which left Nikolaevsk a week before us with three barges in tow. With such a heavy load her progress was very slow. Barges on the Andor River are generally built of iron, and nearly as large as the steamers. They are not towed alongside as on the Mississippi, but astern. The rope from the steamer to the first barge is about 200 feet long, and the barges follow each other at similar distances. Looking at this steamer struggling against the current and impeded by the barges, brought to mind Pope's needless Alexandrian, that, like a wounded snake, drags its slow length along. Each barge has a crew, subordinate, of course, to the captain of the towboat. This crew steers the barge in accordance with the course of the steamer, looks after its welfare and watches over the freight on board. In case it fastens on a sandbar the crew remains with it, and sometimes has the pleasure of wintering there. The barge is decked like a ship, and has two or three hatchways for receiving and discharging freight. Over each hatchway is a derrick that appears at a distance not in like a mast. Above Petrovsky the banks generally retain their level character on the Russian side. Cliffs and hills frequently extend to the water on the Chinese shore most of the land being covered with forests of fallifrous trees. Some of the mountains are furrowed along their sides as regularly as if turned with a gigantic plow. Near the villages of Etu and Dirki the cliffs are precipitous and several hundred feet high, at their base the water is deep and the current very strong. On the north shore the plain is generally free from tall trees, but has a dense growth of grass and bushes. Sand banks are frequent, and the islands are large and numerous. This region is much frequented during the fishing season, and the huts of the natives, their canoes and drying scaffolds are quite numerous. There are but few fixed villages, the country not being desirable for permanent habitation. Near one village there was a gently sloping hillside about a mile square with a forest of oak so scattered that it had a close resemblance to an American apple orchard. The treaty between Russia and China, fixing the boundaries between the two empires, contains a strange oversight. Dated on the 14th of November, 1860, it says, 
Henceforth the eastern frontier between the two empires shall commence from the junction of the river Shilka and Argun, and will follow the course of the river Anor to the junction of the river Osiri with the latter. The land on the left bank to the north of the river Anor belongs to the Empire of Russia, and the territory on the right bank to the south to the junction of the river Osiri, to the Empire of China. The treaty further establishes the boundaries from the mouth of the Osiri to the Sea of Japan and along the western region toward Central Asia. It provides for commissioners to examine the frontier line. It declares that trade shall be free of duty along the entire line, and removes all commercial restrictions. It gives the merchants of Kyokta the right of going to Peking, Orga, and Kalgan, allows a Russian consulate at Orga, and permits Russian merchants to travel anywhere in China. It annuls former treaties, and establishes a postal arrangement between Peking and Kyokta. I presume the oversight in the treaty was on the part of the Chinese, as the Russians are too shrewd in diplomacy to omit any point of advantage. Nothing is said about the land in the Anor. The land on the north bank is Russian, and on the south bank Chinese. What is to be the nationality of the islands in the river? Some of them are large enough to hold a population of importance, or be used, as the sites of fortifications. There are duchies and principalities in Europe of less territorial extent than some islands of the Anor. When Russia desires them she will doubtless extend her protection. And I observed during my voyage that several islands were occupied by Russian settlers for hay-cutting and other purposes. Why could not an enterprising man of destiny like the grey-eyed walker or unhappy Maximilian penetrate the Anor and found a new government on an island that nobody owns? Quite likely his adventure would result like the conquests of Mexico and Nicaragua, but this probability should not cause a man of noble blood to hesitate. Below the Osiri the Russian villages were generally on the south bank of the river, but after passing that stream I found them all on the north side. The villages tributary to China consisted only of the settlements of Golds and Mangoons, or their temporary fishing stations. The Chinese Empire contains much territory still open to colonization and I imagine that it would be to the interest of the celestial government to scatter its population more evenly over its dominions. Possibly it does not wish to send its subjects into regions that may hereafter fall into the hands of the Emperor of Russia. There is a great deal of land in Manjuria adapted to agriculture, richly timbered and watered, but containing a very small population. Millions of people could find homes where there are now but a few thousands. A Russian village and military post 17 miles below the mouth of the Songari is named Michael Semenov. In honor of the Governor-General of Eastern Siberia, we landed before the Commandant's house, where two iron guns pointed over the river in the direction of China. However threatening they appeared I was informed they were unserviceable for purposes of war, and only employed in firing salutes. A military force was maintained there, and doubtless kept a sharp watch over the Chinese frontier. The soldiers appeared under good sanitary regulations, and the quarters of the commandant indicated an appreciation of the comforts of life. The peasants that gathered on the bank were better dressed than those of Petrovsky and other villages. The town is on a plain covered with a scattered growth of oaks. Below this place the wood furnished us was generally ash or poplar, here it was oak, somewhat gnarly and crooked, but very good for steamboat fuel. One design of the colonization of the Anor is to furnish a regular supply of wood to the government steamers. The peasants cut the wood and bring it to the bank of the river. Private steamers pay cash for what they purchase. The captains of the government boats gives vouchers for the wood they take. And these vouchers are redeemed at the end of the season of navigation. 
about 60,000 rubles worth of wood is consumed annually by government, and 12,000 on private account, while the boat took wood Borstein and I resumed our hunting, he carrying a shotgun and I an opera glass, with this division of labor we managed to bag a single snipe and kill another, which was lost in the river, my opera glass was of assistance in finding the birds in the grass, they were quite abundant almost within rifle shot of town, and it seemed strange that the officers of the post did not devote their leisure to snipe hunting, our snipe was cooked, for dinner, and equaled any I ever saw at Delmonico's, we had a wild goose at the same meal, and after a careful trial I can pronounce the Siberian goose an edible bird, he is not less cunning than wild geese elsewhere, but with all his adroitness he frequently falls into the hands of man and graces his dinner table, on the northern horizon, 20 or 30 miles from Michael Semenov, there is a range of high and rugged mountains, as we left the town, near the close of day, the clouds broke in the west and the sunshine lighted up these mountains and seemed to lift them above their real position, with the red and golden colors of the clouds, the lights and shadows of the mountains, the yellow forests of autumn, and the green plains near the river, the stillness broken only by our own motion or the rippling of the river, the scene was most fair to look upon, I have never seen sunsets more beautiful than those of the Amor, I rose early in the morning to look at the mouth of the Sangari, under a cloudy moon I could distinguish little beyond the outline of the land and the long low water line where the Amor and Sangari sweep at right angles from their respective valleys, even though it was not daylight I could distinguish the line of separation, or union, between the waters of the two streams, just as one can observe it where the Missouri and Mississippi unite above St. Louis, I would have given much to see this place in full daylight, but the fates willed it otherwise, this river is destined at some time to play an important part in Russian and Chinese diplomacy, at present it is entirely controlled by China, but it appears on all the late maps of eastern Siberia with such minuteness as to indicate that the Russians expect to obtain it before long. Formerly the Chinese claimed the Sangari as the real Amur, and based their argument on the fact that it follows the general course of the United Stream and carried a volume of water as large as the other. They have now abandoned this claim, which the Russians are entirely willing to concede. Once the fact established that the Sangari is the real Amur, the Russians would turn to the treaty which gives them all the land north of the Amur. Their next step would be to occupy the best part of Manjuria, which would be theirs by the treaty. By far the larger portion of Manjuria is drained by the Sangari and its tributaries. The sources of this river are in the Shanalin Mountains, that separate Korea from Manjuria, and are 10 or 12,000 feet high. They resemble the Sierra Nevadas in having a lake 12 miles in circumference as high in air as Lake Tahoe. The affluents of the Sangari run through a plateau in some places densely wooded while in others it has wide belts of prairie and marshy ground. A large part of the valley consists of low fertile lands, through which the river winds with very few impediments to navigation. Very little is known concerning the valley, but it is said to be pretty well peopled and to produce abundantly. M. de la Brunier when traveling to the country of the Gilyaks in 1845, crossed this valley, and found a dense population along the river, but a smaller one farther inland. The principal cities are Kirin and Sansan on the main stream, and Sidesigar on the Nanmi, one of its tributaries. The Sangari is navigable to Kirin, about 1300 versts from the Amur, and it is thought the Nanmi can be ascended to Sisigar. The three cities have each a population of about a hundred thousand, 
According to the Treaty of 1860 Russian merchants with proper passports may enter Chinese territory, but no more than 200 can congregate in one locality. Russian merchants have been to all the cities in Manchuria, but the difficulties of travel are not small. The Chinese authorities are jealous of foreigners, and restrict their movements as much as possible. The Russians desire to open the salary to commerce, but the Chinese prefer seclusion. A month before my visit a party ascended the river to ascertain its resources. A gentleman told me the Chinese used every means except actual force to hinder the progress of the steamer and prevent the explorers seeing much of the country. Whenever anyone went on shore the people crowded around in such numbers that nothing else could be seen. Almost the whole result of the expedition was to ascertain that the river was navigable and its banks well peopled. In the dim light of morning I saw some houses at the junction of the rivers, and learned that they were formerly the quarters of a manja guard. Until 1864 a military force, with two or three war junks, was kept at the mouth of the Songari to prevent Russian boats ascending. Mr. Maximaj, the naturalist, endeavored in 1859 to explore the river as far as the mouth of the Nanni. Though his passport was correct, the Manja guard ordered him to stop, and when he insisted upon proceeding the Celestial raised his matchlock. Maximaj exhibited a rifle and revolver and forced a passage. He was not molested until within 40 miles of Sansin, when the natives came out with flails, but prudently held aloof on seeing the firearms in the boat, finding he could not safely proceed. The gentleman turned about when only 25 miles below the city. After passing the Songari I found a flat country with wide prairies on either side of the river. In the forest primeval the trees were dense and large, and where no trees grew the grass was luxuriant. The banks were alluvial and evidently washed by the river during times of freshet. There were many islands, but the windings of the river were more regular than farther down. I saw no native villages and only two or three fishing stations. Those acquainted with the river say its banks have fewer inhabitants there than in any other portion. On the Russian shore there were only the villages established by government, but notwithstanding its lack of population, the country was beautiful, with towns, plantations, and sugar mills, it would greatly resemble the region between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, I could perceive that the volume of the river was much diminished above its junction with the Songari, at long and rare interval snags were visible, but not in the navigable channel, we took soundings with a seven-foot pole attached to a rope fastened to the rail of the boat, a man threw the pole as if he were spearing fish, and watched the depth to which it descended, the depth of water was shouted in a monotonous drawl, Scheist, Scheist polyvinae, sem, sem polyvinae, and so on through the various quantities indicated. I thought the manner more convenient than that in use on some of our western rivers. While smoking a cigar on the bridge I was roused by the cry of Tigre, Tigre, from Borstein. I looked to where he pointed on the Chinese shore and could see an animal moving slowly through the grass. It may have been a tiger, and so it was pronounced by the Russians who saw it. I have never looked upon a real tiger outside of a menagerie, and am not qualified to give an opinion. I brought my opera glass and Boris Tynaris rifle, but the beast did not again show himself. Provoked by this glimpse my companions retired to the cabin and made a theoretical combat with the animal until dinner time. The day was made memorable by a decent dinner, the special reason for it was the fact that Boris had presented our caterer with an old coat. I regretted I could not afford to reduce my wardrobe, else we would have secured another comfortable repast.
both schoolward and cook were somewhat negligently clad, and possibly a spare garment or two might have opened their hearts and larders. Of course the sight of the tiger led to stories about his kindred, and we whiled away a portion of the evening in narrating incidents of a more or less personal character. An officer, who was temporarily our fellow passenger, on his way to one of the Cossack posts, a few miles above, gave an account of his experience with a tiger on the Uzuri. I was out said he on a survey that we were making on behalf of the government to establish the boundary between Russia and China. The country was then less known than now, there were no settlements along the river, and with the exception of the villages of the natives, 30 or 40 miles apart, the whole country was a wilderness. At one village we were warned that a large tiger had within a month killed two men and attacked a third, who was saved only by the sudden and unexpected appearance of a party of friends. We prepared our rifles and pistols, to avoid the possibility of their missing fire in case of an encounter with the man-stealing beast. Rather reluctantly some of the natives consented to serve us as guides to the next village. We generally found them ready enough to assist us, as we paid pretty liberally for their services, and made love to all the young women that the villages contained, with an eye to a successful campaign. I laid in a liberal supply of trinkets to please these aboriginals and found that they served their purposes admirably, so the natives were almost universally kind to us, and their reluctance to accompany us on this occasion showed the great fear they entertained of the tiger. We were camped on the bank of the Usuri, about ten miles from the village, and passed the night without disturbance. In the morning, while we were preparing for breakfast, one of the natives went a few hundred yards away, to a little pond near, where he thought it possible to spear some salmon. He waited out till he was immersed to his waist, and then with his spear raised, stood motionless as a statue for several minutes. Suddenly he darted the spear into the water and drew out a large salmon, which he threw to the shore, and there resumed his stationary position. In twenty minutes he took three or four salmon, and then started to return to camp. Just as he climbed the bank and had gathered his fish, a large tiger darted from the underbrush nearby and sprang upon him as a cat would spring upon a mouse. Stopping not a moment, the tiger ran up the hill, 